Welcome back. You're listening to the Koger Center for the Arts Arts Roundup podcast. Welcome to season two of the Koger Center Arts Roundup podcast. We're kicking off a brand new season in the midst of a pandemic, talking a little bit about the Koger Center for the Arts. We've got a lot of really interesting episodes already lined up for the very near future. So we're excited to bring you uh, news about the arts coming back in the midst of this pandemic. But right now, as we sit here on July the 14th, 2020, we're closed in the midst of a pandemic, just like other venues and all sorts of national tours waiting to see what happens next. With me this week is Steve Borders. Steve is the technical director of the Koger Center. He's been with us right from the very beginning. And we realized today as we're sitting here on the 14th of July that there are several other significant 14s that exist in the history of the Koger Center. The first, of course, being the day the building opened, January 14th. 1989. Steve, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what were you doing on January 14th, 1989? January 14th, 1989, it was a a crazy, crazy day. We probably came in about seven o'clock in the morning to finish up not only loading in and rehearsing the London Philharmonic, we were also getting the building ready because the building was not ready at all. We were literally kicking carpet out in the lobby before people walked in, like five, ten minutes before people walked through the doors. We were kicking the carpet out on the floors. Wasn't even glued down. We were just kicking it out so people could walk across the carpet instead of just raw concrete. Outside, it had been rainy and muddy. There were planks like little two-by-fours and uh, other types of wood that were laid out so people could walk across the the wood so they wouldn't get uh, mud all over their fine shoes or high heels and their tuxedos and nice dresses. It was a crazy, crazy time. So the theater is this very much uh, show must go on mentality. And I feel like the construction business is the kind of mentality of we'll, we'll be finished when we're finished. Uh, so this becomes an interesting clash when you get down to the last minute, because, of course, the London Philharmonic isn't going to wait around for another three weeks for the, con- for the carpet to go down and the things to be finished. They've got a show the very next night. Um, so as you were getting down to the wire, you, you were a part of the building um, from before it opened. Uh, earlier today, we were looking at the orchestra show, and you were pointing out how you'd been a part of the project to weld it together and get it hoisted up into the building. Uh, when did you first start working uh, in the building on putting the building together as a part of the that uh, building process? I started working in the building officially as a as a, an employee of the Koger Center in December of 1988. Um, I had been working before that with the construction crews and also working over at the Carolina Coliseum as a stagehand and sound man over there. So I was bouncing back and forth between the two, but I officially came on at the Koger Center in December of 1988, and I helped pull all the speaker cable and hang all the speakers and I helped put up the shell. Um, 
basically the shell came in on a frame and we laid it down on the ground and we welded pieces in, into place and then we started hooking up uh, chain motors and hoisting things up and attaching all the cables to it and making sure it all got into place. Once the frame of the shell was in, then we had to start welding the skins on. So if you look on the shell ceiling, all that are little metal pieces of metal. That's, a, uh, you know, like the uh, four by six sheets of metal that had holes in it. So there would be a scaffold that, that would be set up underneath this, and we would hoist up the metal skin and have welding goggles and helmets on and gloves, and we'd hold the skin up onto the top of the metal frame, and then there would be a welder above us who would weld that piece into place. So we'd get showered with sparks and stuff, and this is all taking place about 30 or 40 feet up in the air. So I'm assuming that part of putting stuff like that together uh, coincided with the building... Um, uh, construction going on at the same time. So uh, while you're on stage doing all of this kind of stuff, are, are people frantically putting seats in the building and all sorts of things around you at the same time? When we were putting the shell ceiling and stuff in, the seats hadn't even really begun to be put in. Um, most of the seats were put down in the orchestra level, and then there were some that were put in the grand tier. But when we started to go open fire marshal walked through with a ruler and was measuring the distance between the armrests and the chairs. And if they didn't meet a certain space, they weren't going to open. So we wound up not seating anybody, I believe, in the grand tier. Everybody sat in the orchestra level on the first show. And uh, then as it started going around, they had to bring in new sets of chair backs that more straight up in the grand tier so they could meet that distance between armrest and the chair back so people could go in and out of the aisles safely. The first performance was the London Philharmonic. There was a whole opening weekend, is that there right? There was a whole opening weekend. There were two shows of the London Philharmonic and one show of the uh, Vienna Boys Choir. Um, and then we closed. And then we closed to finish... Um, construction. Um, there were parts of the stage that weren't painted. The walls weren't painted. The, the floor in the auditorium wasn't painted. Uh, you know, the carpet obviously wasn't, you know, tacked down in the, in the lobby. There wasn't anything in the backstage. The, the carpet hadn't been put down. It was just all rough and dust. It took a long, it, a lot of the time while we were shut down was cleaning things up and going through the punch lists and making sure everything was fixed. When you were first hired, what was your job? So you're, you're a technical director now, but were you hired as the technical director? I was hired as the sound engineer. So I actually pulled all the speaker wire and worked with the shell. I worked with every aspect of the sound. So I know where all the sound, you know, all the microphone lines throughout the building are run, all the different speaker inputs. So I'm, I'm pretty much a walking blueprint because the, the building itself, the blueprints that were with the building, they don't exist. And some of the things that were built in this building were kind of built not according to the blueprint. They were just kind of improvised on the spot. So 
you know, it's it's kind of interesting to see how 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 it's evolved over the years. But yeah, it was a crazy time. We did those three shows, and then once they were done, we shut down for I guess what two months maybe before we did our next series of shows, and we were working every day. 10, 12 hours a day to make sure we could get back open on time. Can you just, from your own memory, tell us a little bit about the days before the Coger Center. So uh, the Carolina Coliseum has been where it is uh, for a long time, uh, where the Darlinmore School of Business currently is right next door to us was the parking lot. And then this lot was a hotel, is that right? This lot was an old hotel that was used, you know, it was... A regular hotel, but it also got bought by the university and it got used as a set of dorms. But when I was in high school, this is where we used to camp out for concerts. So when we wanted to see Van Halen or Aerosmith or, or Def Leppard, we would all come out here two or three days before the show and start a list so we could camp out for tickets so we could get a shot at the first three or four rows of the stage. This is mostly stuff that was at the Carolina Coliseum? This was at the Carolina Coliseum. The Coger Center was a glimmer. All the um, cultural events like ballets or anything like that would take place either at the township or if we did like a type of arts event at the Carolina Coliseum, we would have to build the stage, bring in the soft goods, and it was it was a, a very laborious uh, process. And you were then performing in the arena to thousands of seats rather than in a more intimate setting. Correct. And like when the Coger Center was being built, there was a big uh, gala fundraising event that was supposed to happen for the Coger Center and was going to have Rudolf Nureyev dance to celebrate the opening of the Coger Center. So we built a stage outside in the Carolina Coliseum parking lot for this event to take place. We you know, had the lighting, the sound, the stage, and everything out there. And Rudolf Nureyev came, and he was like, I can't dance on this stage. This stage it doesn't have any give. It's hard. So we took the Carolina Coliseum's basketball floor, which was the university South Carolina Gamecock basketball floor outside, and we built the basketball floor on top of the stage outside so it would give a sprung floor for the event. Now, I've seen the pictures of Nureyev in front of the, just like the steel lattice framework for the building. So the uh, I feel like, so he was here just as sort of around the time that the groundbreaking had started. Right, Is the groundbreaking right? had happened. They had started dropping in the steel. It was still going to be about a year or two years before the actual Coger Center was going to be completed. So we built all that out there, was ready to go. And as in anything with South Carolina, the weather doesn't always cooperate. And, you know, we camped out in RVs and stuff to kind of keep things going and all of a sudden, a rainstorm came up, and it rained, and it ruined the basketball floor. So the event wound up moving back into the Carolina Coliseum, and Rudolf Nureyev had to dance on 
the actual stage, not on top of a basketball floor. And so, yeah, it was a, that was, that was the fi- first official Coger Center show. And it got moved into the Carolina Coliseum. And then, you know, then, you know, after that event was over, we still had basketball games to go on. So we actually had to drive up to Furman University and borrow their basketball floor and bring it back to the Carolina Coliseum and build the basketball floor so the Gamecocks could play a televised basketball game. On a floor that said Furman. On a floor that said Furman. So an interesting start to the Coger Center career. Before we even got off the ground, we were already uh, facing adversity. Right. And then we opened uh, by the skin of our teeth on time for our first three events. Um, Do you remember that first season um, after we closed and then reopened? I imagine that there were some punch list items that were being gone through throughout the year. Oh, yeah, we were constantly redoing things. Uh, like, we, we'd have to redo, uh, we redid the seats, we redid, um, there were some lighting issues that we had to do. Like, we wound up moving our follow spots. Originally, the follow spots were set up on our lighting bridge, and it was just way too steep of an angle for anybody to hit anybody on the stage so we wound up moving those follow spots all the way to the rear of the auditorium and having kind of a makeshift uh follow spot platform that stayed there for several years before we built uh, the one that's currently there now uh, what are your memories from that first season uh of events so at this point in time the coker center was doing uh, a coker presents series which included uh, those uh, initial three concerts, but um, what, what were some of your other memories of that first year of events? I imagine there were some really great performances, but at the same time, a lot of challenges to overcome to get those to happen. There were, there were lots of challenges, and, it, 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 and again, it was all new. Columbia wasn't used to some of the stuff we were doing. There would be times that we would do these great events that we thought people would come to, and it'd be like 10 or 15 people maybe come to see a show. So there were some disheartening things. And, you know, there were different things that we had to work out and figure out. Like the fire, the smoke alarm system in the Coger Center took almost a year to get under control because dust would set off smoke detectors. We finally figured out that if we used dry ice or, or um, smoke or anything like that, that it would set off smoke detectors underneath the auditorium and everything like that. And that would go off during the middle of rehearsals, during load-ins, even went off during a show or two a couple times. So that those were some of the things that we had to work out. And, you know, we figured out that when it was time for, like, smoke or fog, that we had to bring in a fire marshal and shut off the whole fire alarm system So it because our system was so uh, sensitive. And, you know, it was one of the newer systems at the time. You know, it was a laser-detected system. So what would happen is if smoke would cross the beam of the laser, that's what would set off the alarm. So that's, that's you know, little growing pains that we had to work out, you know. One as, of the things that was built in the building that was cut when the building was being built was the grid over the stage. And so uh, fairly early on, you all realized that 
as you had events come in, you would have to hang things. Um, give us a little history about, um, let's, let's talk about the history of the grid because we replaced, well, we, we put in finally a real grid recently, but there were sort of baby steps along the way. So one of the things that I find just crazy about uh, working in this business is that people will do um, seemingly foolish things because the show must go on, like trying to ride the pipes up to the ceiling to hang uh, motors and things. That's how we, that's how we first uh, started rigging in this building. So do you remember, what, what were those early shows that, uh, that came in that required rigging where everyone had thought, oh, we'll never need to do this? Will Rogers Follies was one. So the scenery for a big show like Will, let's use Will Rogers Follies as an example. Um, there's a, a lot of hanging scenery, right. right? And the building was built with 40, 40 line sets line at sets. that time. And um, which, which are the actually, that go in, up the, and down. In, in reality, out of those 40 line sets, 37 of them could only be used because three were permanently used. One was used for the rear traveler. One was used for the fire curtain, and one was used for the act curtain. So that only left 37 available pipes. And uh, sometimes the scenery is too heavy, right? And sometimes it's designed not to hang on a theatrical pipe. So you had to hang them directly to the ceiling. Yes, we had to hang them directly to the beams up top. So over the stage, there's seven steel I-beams that support the ceiling over the stage, and you can hang directly from the I-beam. Um, so what, w- what would you all do to, to make that happen? We would fly in a pipe, and we well, actually fly in two pipes, and we'd strap them together, and then you would jump on the pipe. And this, and this was before we wore harnesses, by the way. So we would jump on a pipe, and we'd have two people on a fly rail, and they would pull somebody up to the ceiling, and that person would be holding a chain, and all the rigging hardware, and you'd fly up to the ceiling, and then you'd lock off the, the, the pipes, and then you would snub them off so they wouldn't move. And you'd move your legs around, and you would like kind of shimmy around and hang a point, and then they'd lower you down, and you'd move to the other side, and you'd raise back up and do that. So when you do a show that's got like 20 or 30 motors, you can't do that. If you've got a show that's got like I think Will Rogers had four motors, but to hang those four motors took almost six hours just because we didn't have the infrastructure to do it. So after Will Rogers Follies was done, you know, everyone was like, oh, this was a success. We need to do shows like that. We want to do Cats. So Cats came to do a site survey on the building, and they liked everything, and then they looked up in the sky, and they were like, well, we'll never be able to do a show in here. And people were like, well, why is that? And they were like, you don't have a grid, and we need to hang 30 chain motors. So we need to be able to have access to the steel to grid, to, to rig. So we shut down one summer... And what was decided is we weren't going to put in a full grid because that was just way too expensive. So they decided on going with a catwalk system, which would give us access to the upper beams. So we wound up having five catwalks built above the auditorium 
that would give us access to the beam so we would be able to to rig. But the walking part is the misnomer in this uh, because you could not stand. Is you could right? not was, stand. We're so close to the ceiling that you had to crawl around on your hands and knees. I'm, I'm six foot one. So Steve in those days is six foot one, 265, 270, okay? You would have to crawl on your hands and knees. And sometimes you'd have to get flat on your belly in certain spots because of where the, the line sets were and the line sets and cables. So you would literally be on your belly scooting across this metal grating. So after the first show of rigging on the metal grating, we went and got a bunch of carpet squares and some razor blades, and we started cutting carpet squares to the length that we could put over the, the metal grating so it wouldn't cut us up as bad. But Cats was that first show that was the first show that uh, caused that change to happen. That was the first show to cause that change to happen. Then after Cats, we did things like Miss Saigon, Tommy. So this was a, just a couple years into the building. Just a open. couple years into the building. This is probably mid nineties. I know you've got because you've worked basically every show that's ever happened in this building. You've got a lot of stories. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the uh, sort of nature of loading in a big show like say Cats or Mamma Mia, uh, one of those initial like week long runs that happened where things are it's not always as easy as it seems when you come and sit down in the audience. Everything looks like it's you know seamlessly uh, is where it is. But um, the process of loading in a massive show like that is, um, I, I always feel like when I watch it, you're um, just seconds away from like, the whole thing falling apart at every moment um, sometimes. It's just one problem that comes up after another that has to get solved, um, you know, and the clock is ticking the whole time. And that's, and that's exactly correct. It, you have to be able to think on your feet and adapt. You can't, you, you've got to be able to adapt to changing circumstances. A piece of set could be broken. Someone could be sick. You know, uh, something won't fit where you thought it was going to fit inside the building and it doesn't fit. So you have to, you know, make adjustments. Like, uh, you know, when we did Cats for the first time, it just took so long to rig in. You know, once you figure out how many trucks you're going to have? How many people do I have? How much space do I need? All the different parts work themselves out first. So the first thing we do when we load in is we're loading in the lights and the sound. We load in the lights and the sound. We get all that stuff up in the air. Once all the lights and sound and all that's up in the air, then we start loading in the stage and the decking. And what happens is nine out of ten Broadway shows will come in and build a stage on top of our stage. So the reason why they do that is because, you know, their stage might be shorter, might be deeper. They might have grooves in it, which have tracks, which allow set pieces to move in and out. Some of them are automated with computer systems that move set pieces in and out. So that, that all takes time. So it's not like you're having, like, five or 10 people load in a show. You can have as many as 60, 80, 100 people loading in a show 
might have 10 or 20 people working for lights, 10 or 20 people working carpentry, 10 or 20 people working with props, 10 people working with wardrobe. All these pieces are all moving simultaneously at the same time. So you're constantly working around people, dodging things. Things can get being pulled up into the air while you're still working on the deck. So you're a heartbeat away from disaster constantly. And, you know, communication's key. Being able to communicate with people, making sure, it, you know, everybody's being safe. That, that's the key of it. We want to be able to get it together. We want to get it together fast, but we want to do it safe. We want to make sure it's safe for the equipment and the scenery, but also for the people that's involved. For that two hours of you sitting there, like for instance, for Wicked, for two hours of people sat there, that took us two days to put in. And then the magic thing is that it all went away in five and a half hours. It all went away in five hours. Loading in always takes longer than loading out because it's, you know, we've got to fit it into the space. Once it's fit into the space, we know it's going to fit going on the carts going out the door because it all came in the door on those carts. So once it comes in, we know that it could get back out. It's kind of no different than, say, taking apart your radio. Um, you can take apart your radio really easily, but putting it back together is a far more complicated process. Yeah, It's so just it, that you're starting with it taken apart, and you have to put it together the first time. But taking it back apart is the easiest. You know, and and the easy. interesting thing about, you know, even with like Broadway shows, we take it all apart and put it on the truck and send it home. Well, sometimes a little piece here or there will get left behind. It's a nerve-wracking moment when you're the one that realizes that uh, something's not in the box that it's supposed to be in. Things like that happen all the time. Like we were doing the show Chicago here at, in Columbia, and it was the first time it was going to come here, and we had to have two pianos for the show, and just not any type of piano. They had to be a specific type of piano, and we had to have those pianos brought in from Charleston. So we're setting up the stage, setting up the pit. Where's pianos? Piano's supposed to be here. No pianos. Where are the pianos? I call the piano people. Oh, they left this morning. Should be there. Get a call about an hour later. The pianos are stuck on the side of I-26 between Orangeburg and Columbia. So I walked over to the School of Music. and I said, I need the keys to your box truck. They gave me the keys to their box truck. I grabbed a stage hand, and we drove, and we found out what exit or thereabouts, where on I-26 this truck was. I loaded a box truck on the side of I-26. So I wound up loading two pianos into another truck on the side of an interstate on an incline, getting it into the truck, driving it to Columbia, offloading it, getting it set up on the pit so we could do rehearsal and then do the show. And, that, and we did it all with about 10, 15 minutes to spare. It does seem like that's the magic number. Um, if you're given 12 hours to load in, you get done with 10 or 15 minutes to spare. And if you have 10 hours to load in, you get done with 10 or 15 minutes to spare. Somehow the everyone's aware of the clock, and um, 
it's, it always takes as much time as you have. It's really hard when you just work straight right up to a show. And we've done it. We've done it plenty of times. But, you know, by the end of that day, you're toast. So we talked about Cats is the first big show that really caused there to be changes um, to the building to accommodate the technical needs. But we started the building with 40 line sets. Today we're at 50, um, and we have a rigging grid. So can you remember some of the steps along the way, some of the shows along the way that caused us to make some physical changes to the building uh, that allowed us to accommodate shows that are getting bigger and bigger? The first real accommodation that we did was for the Book of Mormon. And for the Book of Mormon, we wound up putting in two line sets. When we put them in, we wound up having to put them on the opposite side of the stage from where all the other line sets were, because that's very much, very specific where Book of Mormon needed those line sets. They had to have them right there. So we shut down for a summer, get those line sets set up, which it was, it was difficult to do because you had to move all of our existing line sets around, pull things down, move things out of the way, run all this cable, knock things around, get this new, you know. If you run the line sets on stage right that Book of Mormon needed, you've got to have two flymen. You've got to have one on one side and one on the other. Well, as it turns out, Book of Mormon came here. We set up those line sets, and they were static line sets. So once we got them all set up and everything, they never moved. So we didn't have to keep a person over there to move them during the show. But that was the first reason why we had to update. And then we decided to put in the grid because if we wanted to do a show like Wicked or do something like Lion King or other shows of that ilk, we were going to need a grid. And also, too, we were going to need more line sets. So as we started doing the grid, we started adding line sets, too. And we've eventually bumped up that line set from 40 to 42. Now we're up to 50. So you've been here uh, through all sorts of shows. Do you have any other examples of when things have... Um, we have snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Um, I, I sort of remember uh, one of the first stories I heard when I started working here was about you know the snowstorm that almost scuttled uh, one one of the Broadway load ends. There was a snowstorm, and we were loading this stuff in with sleet coming down and everything like that. But the biggest issue was that the trucks were late. The trucks were real late. Because you can't drive at 70 miles an hour on the interstate in a snowstorm. So what was supposed to start at whatever, 7 or 8 in the morning, right, didn't start. The first truck came, what, hours late? Came like four hours late. And we were all waiting here, waiting for them. But somehow, with getting a start four hours late, we still managed to get it all in the building, set up, and ready to go for the show. Right. I feel like that show, Let's Go On uh, Mentality, is the thing that was the most difficult when the pandemic struck because we were all sitting here thinking, well, you can't cancel a show. We don't cancel shows. We've not missed a show yet. Uh, how, what do you mean we're going to cancel shows? It started getting, started getting serious. The last thing we really did was a kid's show, which is Charlotte's Web. And we even had some schools that were 
calling saying, hey, are you still going to do this? We Are we sure we want to do that? So we did Charlotte's Web, and then we did um, The Wizard of Oz for the Columbia Classical Ballet. Now, this is when things all were starting to go south. Things were starting to cancel. New York shut down. Broadway was shut down. We didn't know what was going to go on. There was a lot of chaos and confusion going on during that whole week. We were, here in South Carolina, of course, people were slightly confused about what do you mean Broadway shutting down? Because we had uh, almost no cases here. Right, we had like one or two cases, and you know, it was was still very, very, very young. And so it came time for Columbia Classical Ballet, and people were concerned. Hey, are we going to come and see this show and stuff like that? So. I had already been talking with the South Carolina Philharmonic and they were, you know, they had an elderly audience and stuff like that. And they were like trying to figure out, are we going to do the show, not do the show? So I had contact with them and I'd talk with some people and we come up with an idea of like, well, maybe we can do a live stream for, for the show, for the Philharmonic. So I went and got a single camera that I could be able to hook up to my laptop so we could do a live stream and got, you know, everything that was needed to, to do that. So the 13th show of the Columbia classical ballet, Friday, Friday, the 13th. Yes. Friday, the 13th. That's a particular date there. Um, and they, we did a morning show we, for school students did, and then we rolled right into uh, Giselle in the evening, and we used this as an opportunity to, to test sort of out test. For, for, for the Philharmonic. So I did the ballet, and I just did one camera, a static shot, sent audio to it, and did a live stream. And that was the Koger Center's first live stream. So if you guys are ever at a trivia contest and they ask you what was the Koger Center's first live stream, it was the Columbia Classical Ballet's Giselle. Then the next day we came in, after we loaded out Giselle that night, we loaded in the South Carolina Philharmonic Saturday morning, March 14th. It's when people started taking things seriously. As we were doing this rehearsal, we were doing a rehearsal live stream with one camera. And Jeff Francis and I started talking and he was like, well, maybe I can come up with another camera. So he came up with another camera and then we had to figure out how we were going to interface two cameras in there. And we were like, well, we can get this little black magic device, which is like a little video switcher, which allows you to take HDMI inputs, USB inputs, different camera inputs. And we were able to start hooking up this camera, this camera, this camera. I think it came up that we wound up doing three cameras for the for the Philharmonic. So we had one camera that was out in the audience, another camera that was set off to the side, and then we had another camera that was up in the booths with us. And what I would do is I would sit there during the show, and I would do a video switcher, and I'd sit there and look at the camera, and I watch it, and I switch from one camera to another camera. Okay, the soloist is going to start. We do a solo camera on her, so you could see her hands. And we were, and I just kind of watched it and felt it, like like I would be an audience member. What I would look at, and that's how I was kind of like doing the show. And at the time, I really didn't even think about it. 
It was just, it, it was natural. I was used to doing that. You know, when I was in college, I used to do video switching for like different things. So it wasn't like something I'd never done before. But we did that show and, you know, we had that camera that was up there with us and we started, once we got through the first movement stuff, then we started experimenting and be like, well, why don't we focus on this person or this person? So we'd start moving the camera. And once that camera gets set, then I'd switch to that camera. It'd be like, like the percussion player. And I'd switch over to another camera, refocus the camera. We'd go to the flute player. We'd focus on the flute player. And then I'd switch to another shot of Morihiko. And then we'd focus on, you know, any different person. So we started, you know, being interactive with it. So that was our last, last show. That was four months ago. You know, it's July 14th today. So four months ago was our last show. That was the last show. That's, this is the longest I have ever gone without doing any type of event. Either I would be mixing a band in a club or I would be going to another venue. I would be doing a sporting event. Nope, nada. No other events. Haven't done anything else. But since we've been closed, um, we've been doing renovations at the Coger Center and we've been trying to do updates and, you know, we're very excited that we're going to, when we fall comes, we will hopefully have more than just three cameras at our disposal and a slightly better system in place because I think that for some time in the future, well, hopefully this will be a regular thing um, depending on the artists, but we'll be we'll have the ability to make that magic happen that sort of happened under duress at the last second with a lot of... Um, problem solving, uh, a regular thing to bring uh, the art that happens on the Coger Center stage out to people who can't always come here. Uh, the Philharmonic has been viewed, that final performance has been viewed thousands and thousands of times um, from people all over the world. It's still up on their website. You can go to the South Carolina Philharmonic website and, and still see that performance. Um, so it's really exciting when we were just talking today, looking at the orchestra shell, how um, the, it's a very recognizable picture. When you see somebody on the stage at the Coker Center and you see the orchestra shell as a part of the picture, you know exactly what theater you're in. And so it's just nice to see clips of that uh, still on the internet. And hopefully we can help people bring art out of the building um, soon back to people, even if they can't come and see the art here in the building. You know, and, and, and with us being able to set up this multi-camera live stream setup now, I mean, the Coger Center is evolving, okay? We're a performance theater. We're now going to become a live streaming venue. And you will most likely see every event will be live and live streamed from now on. That's just going to be the new norm. That'll be the new reality. Reason being is some people are just not going to come back to the theater. They, you know, they might, you know, have health conditions that, you know, prevent them from coming back to the theater. Some people might not be scared. Some people might be, you know, more comfortable 
sitting at home and watching the live stream. They've got their sound system. They can turn it up to their length. They've got their television. They can, you know, they can pause it. They can go. They can do other things. They don't feel like that they're trapped in their seat. And, you know, another thing, too, with us live streaming this, we open it up for the world. The thing that I always enjoy is the fact that, say, Morhiko doesn't live here, um, but people back at home can now watch him conduct. So I, I think it's a real special thing when you've got friends and family who don't live where you work that you can share what you do for a living with them you know, across the Internet. Um, just the personal nature of that, I think, is really fantastic. Uh, so I think that we're at a pretty good place. We've, 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 uh, this is, uh, if you're still with us, <laughs> you've been listening to the Coger Center Arts Roundup podcast. Um, our guest this week has been Steve Borders. He is the technical director of the Coger Center for the Arts. He was our first employee. If Steve has it his way, he'll be our last employee. He's going to stick it out to the bitter end. He's been through basically every show um, in the building. I can think of maybe six shows since I've been here that Steve has not physically been in the building for. And those were all things where uh, he was off working at, like I say, a football game. Uh, but he's, he's been here through thick and thin and is really a prime example of the mentality that it takes to get uh, not only a building open under great uh, strain and trying circumstances, but to get a performance in the building and up on stage looking flawless when you have to overcome a great adversity to get there. And I think that this pandemic that we're in is just one more example of adversity that we are going to have to find a new way to overcome. And I'm so excited to welcome artists back into the building whenever that is and look forward to bringing their art out of the building to people through live streaming. But more importantly, we can't wait to get you, the audience, back in the building sharing these experiences with us. So thank you so much for listening. We look forward to seeing you in person in the near future. The Coker Center Arts Roundup is produced in part by Garnet Media Group, the student media partnership at the University of South Carolina. Information about tickets and upcoming events can be found at CogerCenterForTheArts.com, the official website for Coger Center tickets. For more information about Garnet Media Group, visit GarnetMedia.org.